introduction, uh, we, uh, we'll get started. Uh, my name is Dina Nyman. I'm a bioethicist and I've taught at Drisha for a number of years. I actually went to Drisha and it's nice to be here. I've had, actually, this is the first time I'm in this building. Um, I actually, I, I'm, a little, it's, I'm a little nostalgic about losing the, the base midrash that we had on 86 because I was there before they had the Beit Midrash and then they had the Beit Midrash, but I have to say this is a really nice room. I heard about it and I'm pleasantly surprised uh, um, and it's really nice to be here. Um, so, as we mentioned today, we'll be speaking about organ transplants and it's not within the purview of this talk to address all the complex issues of organ transplants today. It, it's a huge topic. But at least what you'll walk away with today is a brief history of, of, of this topic. And we'll discuss some of the options in organ transplants today. And given this background, we'll proceed to speak about the halachic questions and, and issues that arise in the area of transplantation. So let's begin with a little brief background. Um, around 90 years ago, a uh, professor by the name of, oh, please turn off yourself. I have to give you a little, uh, just, a, <laughs> just a little information, <laughs> which I normally wouldn't give. I just got out of the flu, and I can't hear so well in this ear, <laughs> so if people could just speak up. So uh, this ear works fine. This ear is a little bit dumb. So uh, I didn't hear the cell phone, but if people, I, I hear, I thought someone had a very active pencil or something. <laughs> so uh, it's improving, it's just it's taking a while. So uh, um, anyway, so the background, a little history. Around 90 years ago, a professor by the name of Karl Landsteiner, who was an Austrian physiologist, transplanted a heart into a dog and was able to demonstrate a technique for connecting blood vessels. For several years, Researchers tried to transplant organs into animals utilizing different techniques along with Carl's, Carl Lang, Landsteiner's technique of collecting blood vessels. The main problem to overcome, which you probably could guess, were, were the immunological problems though. Um, however, in 1954, 50 years ago, a doctor by the name of John P. Merrill won a Nobel Prize for successfully transplanting a kidney from Ronald Carrick into his identical twin, Robert Her Richard Herrick, um, because he recognized the immunological problems that needed to be overcome, and he developed pharmaceuticals to assist in this transplantation. I, I don't know if anyone saw, but it actually is the 50th anniversary. It's very fitting. Last week in the Science Times, in the New York Times, they actually had a whole feature, a whole spread. Th there's, some, there's some handouts here. They had a whole spread in the Science Times about Richard Herrick. Um, and actually, it's one of the earliest successful transplants, and, it, and, it, and he's still going strong, which is actually quite wonderful for, for transplantation. Um, but it really was because Dr. Merrill recognized the immunological problems um, that needed to be overcome that people just didn't even think about before. And, and certainly, it had a, a positive effect. But... Um, and, and people continued working on transplantation procedure. But in 1967, a man by the name of Christian Barnard from South Africa, he had an, I would say it was an overly celebrated heart transplantation that he partook in, where essentially he, um, he, he took the heart of a dying black woman, 
in South Africa and put it in a white man's body. Now, I say it that way because Barnard's ethics were really questionable because essentially um, he took the heart from this woman before she was really declared dead. Um, so essentially he committed murder. However, um, well, well, truthfully, the ethic, I mean, we don't have to speak about um, the rights of the black population in South Africa, right, Absolutely. at that time. She was, what, what he actually did was, she had a, she had a, a, she was hit by a car, so she had a car accident, and um, she would have been brain dead very shortly if they would have had the the technique to really determine whether or not she was indeed brain dead. They didn't have that then, but what they did was they hooked her up to a respirator. She was breathing fine. Um, she was probably in a state called PVS, which we'll talk about a little later, persistent vegetative state. That's what it sounds like she had. That's really what I think was going on there. But what they ended up doing was hooking her up to a respirator, which caused other um, cerebral complications. And she died. Um, she, they thought she was brain dead. In, retro, in retrospect, she wasn't. Um, and then they, they harvested her heart and placed it into um, this, this 55-year-old man. However, I have to tell you, it wasn't a successful transplant later on. The man um, didn't make it um, later on because he himself was not in good, from the recipient perspective as well, he wasn't in good health, he had diabetes, he really was not a candidate for surgery at the time. But Christian Barnard was, for all that he accomplished, he really was a person who was trying to push this type of procedure long before we knew enough and long before we were really ready um, to, to do this type of protocol, to do this type of procedure. Um, so unfortunately, Unfortunately, it wasn't successful. However, the response to this technique was, was very, was, was wonderful. Yeah, I'm sorry. Long before, I think, the medical community knew enough about immunosuppressive drugs, knew enough about e even basic cardiac surgery, um, we weren't as advanced. But he was very excited. Christian Brenner was very excited to try out. Um, these procedures, because of the potential for life-saving, I, I, I don't want to say his heart wasn't, no pun intended, wasn't in the right place, but I have to tell you that he, you know, to some extent, you have to know, as a surgeon, you have to know when is it time to take the first, you know, to take the first step to do some, a procedure like this, because essentially, he really caused the demise of two human beings, and ethically, and, and we also didn't have such a system of ethics um, and ethical standards, um, and many people did not call, it, call what he did to task. Um, only later on did people recognize what he did. Excellent. Carl, Carl Ling, Lingsteiners, and they were doing the heart pump. They were doing the artificial heart pump at that point. No, but utilizing what he did, they tried to start um, an artificial heart pump at that time. And that is when all that information came into play. Right, I, I'm giving you a very brief background. There's a lot more history going on here. Right, I mean, you're talking about, right. And it had to be done within a one minute. It, it wasn't even to be done, you know, th there was a lot of technique that needed to be perfected, and absolutely, you're, yeah. So, so, again, this is a very brief history. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, good point. So, anyway, as I was saying, that the, the response to this technique was great, and people were really trying to advance in, in, 
transplant surgery. However, this excitement died down from 1968 to 1970 when 162 patients underwent heart transplants and 144 of those patients died. Um, there was a well-known transplant surgeon, Decolia, I can't remember his first name, but, but he transplanted 23 people and not one person had survived longer than one year. Um, so that, that was really a shock to people, that they thought they were advancing and then all of a sudden there was a halting in this procedure. Well, well there was suspicion that... Not everyone. No, what, what happened was they thought that they were good candidates because they learned from what happened with Christian Barner. They, and, and, and it wasn't clear, but, but this, this transplant surgeon was, he had perfected the transplant. He, he had done kidney very well, and he had done other, he had done a little bit of liver. He, he had done some other, other organs, but heart he had not done. And every single one, and, and he was really viewed as one of the top surgeons, and not one of his patients um, survived. And people just kind of took a backseat. But then people realized, okay, we have to take this slowly and we have to develop. And, and I'm just going to fast forward ahead now and say that we know what we know now after much practice, after knowing a lot more, taking the steps a little bit slowly, we have now changed this conversation because today there are transplant specialists who are able to transplant liver, heart, pancreas, cornea, intestines, hand, now they're talking face transplants, um, which is a different issue altogether, but, but all these techniques, um, the techniques are really advancing, and it's really quite astounding given where we came from, but heart transplants now are saving lives, kidney transplants now are saving lives, and now this discussion has been shifted really from a theoretical discussion. Um, that organ transplant, it used to be a theoretical discussion that organ transplant could save lives. Now it really is that organ transplantation is saving lives. So that's where we are, and I know that I fast forwarded ahead a lot, but there's a lot to read up on in that issue. It, it, it's very interesting, and, and I could give you a lot of recommended readings, a lot of interesting um, procedures and, and surgical techniques that really helped advance this area. Um, but now, yeah, yeah, because that was, that really, since Merrill recognized the immunological concerns that we needed to overcome, people started developing immunosuppressive drugs. And actually, cyclosporin is the best of the immunosuppressive drugs that we really, it was really one of the best um, advancements in medicine. When we're going to talk about Revmotion, what Revmotion knew later on, he didn't even know about cyclosporin yet. He said, develop those immunosuppressive drugs. It's funny because he wasn't even a medical person. He surrounded himself with people before he passed on medical issues. But he's like, develop those immunosuppressive drugs. It was interesting that he said that because clearly that's what enabled the development in transplant um, surgery. Uh, yeah. But, but now we really are saving lives. But why aren't we saving as many lives as we need to? And that, that is that with the discussion of, with, with the success of organ transplants, um, a different problem has arisen, and that is scarcity of resources. How will society procure the organs necessary for the multitude of patients in need of transplantation? That's our biggest challenge. Um, and according to the article, uh, there was a very big article in the New England Journal of Medicine, maybe some of you saw it, the rate of organ procurement from cadavers, from cadaver donors, has stagnated, and it is, we're in a worldwide problem. Um, and that's, that's, where we, that's where we are now. And we have all these organs, uh, all these organ 
recipients or potential organ recipients and we don't have the organs. And sadly to say, the Jewish population in, in general has demonstrated itself to be one of the least likely groups to donate. In the United States, a Jew can benefit from other populations in the country who do donate to hospitals and organ, and organ banks. Yet in Israel, you only have 8.5 donors per million. And this is, a much, this is much lower than Spain, France, Germany, and even the United States, which incidentally, United States is, is really, relative to the other countries, is very low in terms of their organ pool. So that, that is really astounding. Um, and there is an, ex yeah. Ah, we're going to get excellent. Hold that thought, because that is going to be our main. In the United States in general, but you look at some populations, certainly um, the Jewish population, which is really one of the least likely groups. Um, but you have also people who just don't, uh, some people just really don't know the facts and don't know how they're taken. Also, the definition of death, which we're going to get into also. How do we define um, death? But, but these are great points. We're going to get to all this, and you're going to see it in the Makaros, but you're also, we're going to discuss what's going on in America as well. That's, yeah, you're thinking on the right track. Yeah. Um, but even in, in Europe, um, in, uh, that's connected with Israel, um, there's an exchange pro program called Eurotransplant. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, in which, con uh, w in which um, people contribute, or countries contribute to what they can to an organ pool. And organs do travel from Europe to Israel and vice versa. Yet Israel has not succeeded in convincing Eurotransplant Euro to establish a protocol for cooperation and exchange. Because Israel has been very slow to organize, and more importantly, Israel has failed to donate to the organ pool. They just haven't stepped up to the plate. And last year, only 75 families donated organs in Israel. And, and think about it. That's a lot more than... Some people say that really there are, there, it's around 110 because of all the, um, all the suicide bombings, etc. Um, many people are saying that the number is increasing, but at a, at a very low rate. Um, and, and it really is an untenably low number. Um, and the need for transplantable organs in Israel far exceeds the country's readiness to donate. Well, well we're going to talk about that. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Good. Yeah. We're going to talk about, you know, what is the perspective in Israel and is it highly influenced by halacha or not, what, what really is going on. So, yes, um, we'll, we'll discuss it. We'll discuss it. Um, so many, what's, what's happening today, though, is many Israelis in need of transplants, what they do is they're traveling abroad um, to receive organs. And most go to the United States. You may have seen in the New York Times, um, they did, I think, uh, a feature about two or three years ago in the New York Times magazine that an Israelis got a really bad rap that they were going to Czechoslovakia and certain places in, in Russia, and they were trying to buy organs there. And that happens. It really does happen. There's a black market. But in general, um, the, you have a huge, a huge percentage of people needing organs that come to the United States because most of these European countries are closing their doors to any outside populations because they don't have enough organs for the native populations. So Israel really needs to go somewhere. So they're traveling to the U.S., and the national insurance companies in Israel are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars, which they really don't have, to be accepted in the United States. So... And, and actually, I can give you a very interesting, um, 
an interesting, two interesting scenarios. Uh, that Avraham Steinberg, he's the he's a pediatric neurologist at Charitzetic Hospital. He also wrote Encyclopedia Hilchatit Refuit, which is a wonderful body of work that run the Pras Yisrael. And he's head of ethics at Hebrew University. He's, he's an, and he was very close to Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach. So he filters a lot of questions and he speaks frequently um, on bioethics issues. And when he discussed organ transplantation, he, was, he recalled two scenarios. Um, the first scenario was that there was a woman in Israel who had two kids and at, after the birth of her third child, she, it appeared as if she was having a heart attack, but she was very young, so they were very suspicious. So after catheterization, what they did is they saw that she had some kind of spontaneous tear in her heart. So they had to basically rush her to the emergency room for cardiac surgery, but they realized that the heart was irreparable, and she died in the OR, and there was nothing they could do for this patient. And he contrasted this scenario with something that happened here at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, which is almost identical. There was a woman who was 35, and after the birth of her second child, had something very similar happen to her. And again, after catheterization, it, reve it revealed a tear in her heart. And what the transplant surgeons did, immediately they contacted to make sure that there was a heart available, and there was. So they were able to put her on this artificial heart pump, which incidentally you don't do if there's not a heart available. Um, they put her on a heart pump, uh, uh, artificial heart pump. She was able to wait, successfully await her surgery for two months, and she's at home with her kids. So partially you could say to me also this is, if you don't have as many transplant procedures, the surgeons themselves are not as equipped. Um, that's true, but it's also because there was just nothing available for the transplant surgeons to do at the time um, for, to, to, save this woman's, to save this woman's life. Um, and, and the difference, again, is mostly due to the fact that there's just such a small number of organs available for transplantation in Israel. And aside from the few individuals who can come to the United States for transplants or a few number of individuals that have had transplantation in Israel, there is very little hope for Israelis needing transplants these days. And it also would be false, just getting to your point, it also would be false to say that the reasons for the shortage in Israel is due to religious Jews, because even secular Israelis do not donate. There happens to be a widespread notion by Jews, religious as well as non-religious, that organ donation is wrong. And this sentiment is prevalent among Jews who live here too. I have to tell you, people feel the same thing here. In the United States, as we said before, Jews are among the least likely to donate. Who donates the most? Um, sadly to say, sadly to say, low-income populations who, um, illiterate populations who are not as um, informed about the consequences um, for their families. Um, uh, and, and there are, and, and, and yeah, that's, that's the answer. Um, if they're live donors for, in terms of kidney, um, and if they're families and they think that they'll get some kind of kickback, which sometimes they do, even though it, it's a question of if that's legal or not these days, compensation, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but low-income families certainly are, they do donate. Um, and also, um, white, um, people who sign their organ cards, I would say, white 30s to 50s range. Um, so you have, those are, but people who are religious for the most part, 
if there's a very strong religion connected to them, uh, most likely they will not donate. Although you have low-income families who are religious and they question that, but they say if they go through um, the process of, of, of people explaining to them, you know, a little bit about the procedure and this is wonderful dignity for your family and, uh, you know, um, a lot of times those families will, uh, will give in to this kind of procedure. Um, Right. Jews just don't do that. Right. Right. Well, we're going to hopefully clear some of that up today. have we in America? Right, right. And we're trying in America and we're also trying in Israel as well now. But it's, as, and, and we'll get into what Hads is doing a little bit later. But yeah, it's about education and it's about not, not pushing people to donate, not, but at least letting people make informed decisions. Absolutely. So, um, and, and again, that the Jewish community, truthfully, with, with its tradition of Tzedakah, Gemilut Chesed, Pikuach Nefesh, saving a life, is, is not sufficiently meeting its need for life-saving organs, is enough to demand a serious ex- examination of halachic and social issues involved in transplantation. Um, and in our basic halachic considerations surrounding organ transplantation, what we need to do and start this education is really identify who is involved here in, um, in organ transplantation. So who do we have? We have the recipient we have the donor, we have the society or community, and we have the physician. So who is the recipient? The recipient is someone whose organs is, organ is failing or damaged, and the only way for the organ to function, and in many cases for the person to survive, is to put in a new functional organ such as a heart or a liver. Additionally, there are situations where the failure of certain organs or tissues will not necessarily cause the patient to die, but will cause the patient to have a serious disability or a diminished quality of life. These types of cases include kidney or cornea transplant, for example. With kidney, um, dialysis, sometimes it is at the fatal level, but, but dialysis is an arduous regimen. An organ donation can improve a person with kidney failure's quality of life. 
as well as increase her, his or her lifespan. An individual who is blind, for example, due to defects in the cornea, can receive a transplanted cornea and greatly improve her quality of life with restored vision. The donor is someone who gives an organ for, for replacement to the recipient. And this is going to be the biggest area in, in the, the halakhic ethical discussion. We're going to see that. Then you also have the society and community. It is important to consider the structure with which society addresses the relationship between donor and recipient with regards to harvesting and allocating organs, as well as funding transplantation procedures. And finally, the physician must have the integrity to determine that the benefit outweighs the risk of the procedure and must have the expertise to perform the transplant surgery. Okay, so that is a little background about where we're going to be going here today. Um, what I would like to do now, um, what Dusha has informed me is that there hasn't been enough Chavrusa learning um, this past group, this past week. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you guys, I would say, um, let's aim for 20 minutes, but I'm open to 40. <laughs> so uh, what I'd like people to do is perhaps break up into Chavruta learning. Um, these sources that you have received, they are um, translated as well. So if people don't want to do it in the, the, the Hebrew or Aramaic Lashon, please feel free to use um, the, the English translation. And let me also say that I have guided you um, in these translations, in these sources. So you can see that, you know, if, if I have headed Kohanim, concerns about Kohanim, think when you're reading these Zakaros, okay, what does this have to do with Kohanim? Or how can this, um, how is this source supporting this, this, this specific area? So um, let's, and then we're going to have a little bit of a break, um, like, like a little um, bathroom break right after, and then let's make sure to get back here at around 11 if possible. Okay? Or, or, or maybe even a quarter two. Yeah. Let's say a quarter two. No, uh, you have the sources. Why don't you go through them and familiarize. Just familiarize yourself with these topics because there's a lot of material here that, that really is very relevant. And if you can familiarize yourself with some of these topics, we'll really be able to go. And you'll be able to think as we're discussing this, you'll be able to think of how these issues really affect our discussion. to be able to see the majority of these sources. So, and people's comments are unbelievable. So, but I w I'm going to ask if we could just wait, if we can, until after, um, unless it's a real pressing comment, and for sure, wave your hand and make sure that I see you. Um, I'm going to ask if we could just forge ahead, unless something is not clear and you need something clarified, okay? Because I, I really... Um, I really would like to make sure to get through the majority. Some of this stuff is really, is really interesting and very meaty, and I, I, I'd like everyone to be able to see it. Um, okay, so the first question that you probably asked, which I actually saw many of you asking, is whether a Jew is permitted to subject him or herself to surgery. You know, organ transplantation is a very major surgical procedure. Can I, as a recipient, undergo surgical procedure? Can I, as a donor, undergo surgical procedure, and you saw in source one and two that a Jew is not allowed to injure him or herself. And, okay, you know, presumably, I don't know if you saw the Pikuach Nefesh 
um, sources. But presumably, you probably already figured this out. If someone is dying or they need some kind of assistance, for pikuach nefesh, you probably could figure out that that would probably be okay. Um, if there was some reason to this incision or this wounding, etc. Um, but so, so the question is, are we randomly wounding or can we see its permissibility in, in some fashion? So to what extent is a procedure life-saving? To what extent is it worth it? to undergo this procedure. So within the context of generally proven treatments, an organ recipient must evaluate the risk involved. In most situations, if the physician says there's a 90% chance that you're not going to make it, we would probably say that surgery would be forbidden. As according to the Shulchan Aruch in Source 3, we saw you can't do anything to someone who's dying, a goseis. Um, and I mentioned to a few people that the goseis, it's a term that's kind of finding its way out. It, according to Rabbi Black, he's really the only one I know who's using the term ghosts to be three persons um, expected to die within three days. Really, we'll say that a ghost is someone who is someone expected to die in, in the very short term. And just because you saw other sources as well using the term chayesha'a, chayesha frequently is used interchangeably with goseis, but I have to say this. Chayesha'a means momentary life. It's not given a certain time frame. Um, it could be as much as a year people use the term chayesha'a. So it really means anyone expected to die within a short time period. Okay? So as long as those definitions are cleared up. But anyway, in, in a situation of goseis, where a person is expected to die, we know we're not allowed to do anything to shorten this person's life, okay? So certainly if someone's not a goseis, if someone's living a little bit, we know that someone's fine, they just found out that they're terminal, surely they shouldn't be able, you shouldn't be able to undergo some kind of surgical procedure unless you really know that the treatment will be effective. Okay, but there's an interesting toast vote that you guys saw. There's something very interesting which maybe you guys picked up on. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was corrected. I'm not going to use the term guys. If anyone hears me use that phrase, um, I, uh, you wonderful individuals who came on your winter break to come and hear a share. That's, um, there's, there's an interesting toast vote in the Gemara in Avodazar, which you guys, which you all saw in sources five to seven. I want you to skip over the Shrut Yaakov for a minute. Um, the Gemara asks if one can go to this Avodazar doctor if one is dying. And the Gemara's assumption is that, this, we, we spoke about this, what, what is the Gemara's assumption? That this Ovdevodazara doctor in all probability is going to do what? It's going to kill the patient. So if it is not clear that the person is dying, one should not send the person to this Ovdevodazara doctor. However, if the person is definitely dying, he should be sent to the Ovdevodazara doctor for the patient's going to die anyway. And what is the phrase that is used, everyone? Look in your sources. L'chaisha lo chayshinat. We're not concerned for losing the short amount of time the person may live. And, and Tosot asks a great question. Does anyone, could anyone dare uh, to ask Tosot's question? Why in the Gemara, in Yoma, which I don't know if you saw yet, because that's really at the end, there's a case in Yoma where there was some kind of episode where there was like an avalanche and debris fell and there was a huge story building 
I don't know how tall, but it fell, and people were trapped underneath the debris. I, I told someone that the first time I taught this, actually, not the first time, one of the first times I taught this was after 9-11. And it was very hard for me because it's actually going on as I was teaching this, and it was very bizarre for me. But these are real cases that the debris fell on a number of individuals. And the question is, if it's on Shabbos, can I clear off the debris in order to save someone's life? We know that on Shabbos we're not allowed to push aside debris, carrying hotzah, other violations um, on Shabbos. So are we allowed to clear that? So clearly the Gemara says, the Gemara says, what, what is the phrase there? I don't know if you saw this, this source, but l'chaisha chayshinan. We're concerned for the short, temporary amount of time that this person might live. We're allowed to clear the debris in order to save these people's lives. Because potentially, you think, everyone says they're dead. They're definitely dead. And you say, no, but maybe they're living. Maybe they can live. So violate Shabbos and clear off the debris because maybe these people will live. And the phrase again, l'chai shachayshinan. So Tosos asks a question here. Why, in this case, uh, in Yoma, are we allowed to clear off the debris l'chai shachayshinan? And in the case of the doctor, the Ovdei Vodazara doctor, the concern there clearly is that the person's not going to make it out. The person's going to be killed. So why are we not saying don't send them to the Ovdei Vodazara doctor. They could be killed there. Toso says we are not concerned for the here. We're not concerned for the situation where potentially um, this person is going to live a longer life. Maybe this doctor can heal this person. So, and, and Toso says this right inside um, right um, clearly inside the Tosos. He says, look at it from the perspective of what is the benefit of the individual, Latovato. What is the benefit for this individual? In the Shabbos case, the benefit for the individual is for, is for us to be concerned that he lives, even for a short amount of time. So we are Machal Shabbos. In the case of the, of the Ovdevodazara doctor, it's for the patient's benefit that he has the possibility to live a longer life. So we are not concerned for Chayisha about losing that short-term life. And Tosfot says this, we give up the vadai for the suffix. For people I explained this to already, I apologize, but it, it bears repeating. We set aside what is certain for what is uncertain. With Shabbos, there is the vadai, there is the certainty that the person will die under the debris if we don't move it. That is certain. But the suffix is that he might be alive. So we move aside that debris. With the Ovdei Vodazara doctor, there is a vadai that she's going to die. She is going to die if she goes to that Ovdei Vodazara doctor. And the suffix is, ah, but maybe, maybe she'll be cured. Maybe there's that small potential that she's, she'll be. So we risk the short-term life for the possibility of getting a cure. And just want, if you could hold it one second, I just want to finish this point. This is where the Shvut Yaakov and the Pitchei Tshuva, the Shvut Yaakov 1700s, um, very important posek and very risky in his, in his um, Pitchei Lacha, but really he gets to the point where he says that he uses this tosos to answer a question that was asked to him, where there was an experimental drug that was out there. And this is after of Deva Desire Doctor. But there's an experimental drug, not on the market, they had no market, but he heard about. And someone was very sick and they were going to die. So they said, Do I say that a person's like a ghost, they say I shouldn't move them, I can't do anything to them? Or do I say that potentially 
this drug could save this person. Do I say l'chayisha chayshinan or l'chayisha lo chayshinan? And he uses the same terminology, the same understanding that Tosod had with regard to the Ovdeyavod as our doctor. That there's the certainty that maybe you could say the certainty, there's the certainty this person's going to die. But the suffix is that maybe this drug could cure someone. So you could undergo the risk. He said, no matter what, even if it's 90% chance this person's going to die, he said there's a chance that the patient would benefit. And therefore, this is permissible. And I just want you to know the Ramban in Torah HaAdam also mentions this, that for Chayisha and the Chachmat Shlomo, the Darfei Tshuva quotes the Chachmat Shlomo in your day as well. And he also said, he doesn't even, extend, he doesn't even say like a short-term Chayisha, he extends Chayisha. And he says, even if someone's considered a Trefa, which is a person who, can, who we know is going to die within a year, even in that situation, um, one could undergo experimental treatment. So it's really been pushed by the Rishonim that one could really risk their life if they're in a situation like that. Um, you had a question. Good question. Good question. Excellent question. Excellent question. I'm just about to answer that. There are two. Um, she asked that is this a requirement? Maybe people would rather trade quality of life than undergo some kind of treatment, which is an excellent question. And the answer is look at the two sources, source eight and source nine, which you saw. We have two psukim here. One is the key points is v'nishmarta ma'od l'nafshotechem and rak yishamer shmor nafshacha ma'od. Watch yourselves very carefully and only, and again, this emphasis of watch yourself, take heed, watch yourself. And the Gemara and the Rambam that you have in source 10 understand these two psukim to be an injunction to remove all danger to one's physical well-being. Therefore, if a patient has no functioning kidney and his complications with dialysis, he may be obligated to undergo transplantation. And actually, the Nishmat Avraham, Dr. Avraham Avraham, I don't know if you ever had occasion to hear him, um, but he said that a person who's in, da- in danger from dialysis complication is therefore instructed to remove the dangers from him via kidney transplant. And actually, he views it as a chiv. He views it as an obligation. Now, there are many who say that this is not mandatory. This is one's right. And this is interesting because in secular ethics, it's with, the patient is not obligated to seek medical treatments. Patients have autonomous rights to refuse treatments. But here, one may, and, and this is where you would consult a personal halakhic authority, someone who you feel trustworthy in this area, to ask, may I refuse treatment? Or am I being over, am I, am I violating a, a halakhic prohibition? of not being careful to myself, removing my potential well-being. And, and, that's, and that's a very interesting question. Um, according to the Shabbat Arab, you have an obligation to do everything you can, even if it diminishes your quality of life. According to, however, according to others, okay, you have, you have the right, like according to the Shavut Yaakov, what you saw, really the Shavut Yaakov gave the potential for someone to undergo that kind of treatment. You can. You may. Um, the Gemar, from the Gemara, it appears, you may go to the Obdei Avodah doctor. But this is where the Machloket will be. Whether or not you're Machloket, whether or not you're obligated, or if you just, you, you can make that choice. Yes? Is um, your requirement 
requirement to go and try to find treatment the sort of thing where you have to you have to not refuse it or you have to go out and seek it? Seek it. Okay. Try to try to use it. If it's available to you, utilize it. And oh, oh, you're asking if you have to seek it. So no. So if there is something available that you know about and that really is what the Shvut Yaakov and the Tosfot were really commenting on. That's right. If there is something that's known to be available, you should do it. Should you actively pursue it? I would say, according to the V'dishmartem et Nafshotechem and Shmuel HaNafshacha, I would say one should try to go about and see if there's any opportunity for you to improve your well-being. Ah, so let's say, should I look for the riskiest treatment? And that's actually that's true. What I mean. I mean, like, should I um, exhaust myself in my search? I think if there's something available, made available to you, that's where potentially the Nishmat Avraham was saying you have that obligation. If someone has kidney failure and there's a transplant option available to you, you know that this is an availability. This is like it's being done at Mount Sinai Hospital. Right. Which could be different from like you're in your house alone and just the process of going downstairs to open the phone book. You should, I mean, Raki Shomelacha and Ushmonaf Shachamaod, I think there has to be some effort on your part to go out and see if there's some treatment available, regardless of what there is. Do you have to do an exhaustive search everywhere? I think that's a personal choice to make. I mean, how much you feel that you've exhausted the possibility. But, but I think that there is, there, there really is a biblical requirement to try to keep yourself alive as much as you can. Questions of quality of life is another question, and that's a legitimate point. What is, what is living? And that's a whole lecture on quality of life, which I think is very interesting. Um, we're not going to address all that, but I think that's related. I think it's totally related. Yeah. was uh, talks about the importance of consulting specialists, uh, both medical and... and that was the Shvut Yaakov, within, right. Okay, within, right. Within the city. Right. In other words, uh, if the doctor's standing in front of you and says, transplant or not, choose right, right. now, that might be somebody I might not necessarily want to have do my transplant because, you know, my heart, when he says that, walks into my feet. I'd much rather have somebody sit down and say it. Absolutely. So the personality of the person doing it oh. and, you know, also has to be taken into consideration and, and a few other things. But, but you know, don't, don't start going doctor shopping across the country because it may end up being too late. Absolutely. And also, when the Shvut Yaakov mentions that, he just mentions that there are experts in the area um, who really will know more about this than you. And their halacha, he, he said experts and he said halachic authorities, if you read it carefully. And he means there are halachic issues involved and there are also are experts who really know a lot about this. Scientific, Scientific exactly. That's exactly what he means. And when you said, how much do I have to exhaust my search? But you're right. There are dangers to an exhaustive search. So keep that in mind. Yeah. I mean, guys, I, I want to take this question, but then let's try to forge ahead because we have a lot of macros to cover. Yeah. The other thing I would just say is um, I think 
that encourages independence to a fault. And <laughs> one of the things that I would say about this is that, you know, one would hope that at, a, that at this point in your life, God forbid, you would not be alone. And that there, this would be the time when you would pick up the phone and say, I need right. help. Right. Find some doctors. Right. You would call a rabbi. You would call a... Right. There are societies. There yes. Yes. And help you. Right. But but it's not only about the issues of transplantation. I think in general, and, and sometimes sometimes we are too independent, and sometimes we're not independent enough. So there there is a healthy balance there. But, um, but in America, I think we tend to think that we're supposed to always take care of it ourselves, ourselves, ourselves. It's, it's, it's a Jewish value versus an American value in conflict. I mean, I teach English as second language. I'm very aware of the American yeah. cultural. Yeah. Yeah. And when I had cancer, people. Right. See. Absolutely. And you have to be willing right. to take it when it's your turn. Okay. That's a good point. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So, given that information and seeing that we can risk take some risky situations. We're going to now discuss the three major halakha concerns that emerge when dealing with organs that a recipient would receive from a donor who is dead. Okay, I don't know if you saw these sources, but let's start with source 11. 11 and 12. In Devarim, if a person is guilty of a capital offense, and the person, there's a machloka, whether or not a person is hung or you impale him upon a stake. But in any event, um, you cannot let his corpse remain overnight. You must bury him the, self, uh, the, the same day. And the phrase there is kavor tikvarenu. You must bury that person. And the Gemara in Source 12 comments that you must bury him means that you are not allowed to do, he t they take it in the negative, you are not allowed to delay burial of that person. The second source, so that's the first concern that we would have. Can't delay burial. Second concern in source 13, in Ovde Vodazara, it's, it's prohibited to derive any benefit from someone who is dead. And finally, in source 14, in Baba Basra, it's forbidden to desecrate the dead. Okay. <laughs> what? <Mumia>. Yeah. <laughs> Thus, one is never allowed to sever any part of a cadaver. One can't desecrate or violate the dignity of the dead. And there is an obligation to bury the body in its entirety. And that's something, that is something that we really have to think about because when, and, and by the way, the, the desecrating of the dead, I should mention that Avraham, Avraham does mention that that is, it may be only a rabbinical obligation, not a, not a biblical obligation, but it may be a rabbinical obligation. But those three obligations, those three obligations that we have to someone who's dead, it's the least we could do to someone who's dead, right? If we take organs from a dead donor, aren't we clearly violating these three laws? Um, does anyone want to take a crack at it? I don't know if you saw this yet, but do they want to take a crack at and I take it, but what's the halakhic response to, to that? Good. So, everyone look at source 34. The answer is, prohibitions are overridden by pikuach nefesh, saving a life. 
And according to Rav Unterman, who was the former chief rabbi of Israel, in his response to Shevet Yehuda, you see that he wrote, organ transplantation clearly demonstrates saving a life and is therefore permissible and can override these prohibitions. And to save a life, one may override all prohibitions except for Ovdei Zarah, right? Giloi Arayot and Shvichot Those are the only three things that you may not, they're big things, but you may not violate those if it means that you'd be saving someone's life. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin, he takes that from the Gemara, I'm sorry? What are the three things? The three things, let's look at the Gemara in Sanhedrin right now, we're going to reiterate that in Source 15, that one may transgress any prohibition in the Torah in order to escape death, except the prohibitions against idolatry, forbidden sexual relations, and murder. Okay? I'm sorry? Murder. Taking someone's life. That's a very good point. So the question is, is this improving? It, we, it has been documented, and it's known, that if someone has, someone always can develop potential problems with dialysis. And it can shorten someone's lifespan um, if someone continues to have dialysis for a long time. So for that reason, yes, it is allowed. And while we're here, I wasn't going to talk about it, but just the cornea transplants, people ask. And there's a very well-known Gemara that if someone doesn't have sight, they don't have life. So actually, Rav Unterman, you'll have a tshuva a little later that he actually wrote. I, I don't think I gave it to you, but in one of the tshuva that I quoted, if you ever are ambitious to, to read that Shiva, I translate them for you. It's kind of meaty, but um, he speaks about um, cornea transplant and how that does save someone's life. Other concerns are going to be like nose plants, plant, transplants, facial transplants that they're working on now. Those are questions that are not necessarily going to save someone's life. However, you might have other concerns about someone's psychological well-being. And potentially that gives someone, when, when you learn about palliative care or quality of life, psychological issues do come into that. Can someone withhold, withdraw treatment if there are psychological effects? And the flip side is, what happens if someone has psychological effects that's inhibiting their living? And potentially facial transplants, nose transplants, might um, be permitted halakhically when they have enough technique in the facial transplant area. They're still working on it, I think, in, uh, in Louisiana. But, I'm sorry? Skin, well, skin grafts for sure, but that's potential that saves for infection. There, there are always a medical, yes, there's always a medical reason, yeah. Ah, that's great. Can you hold that for donating organs for research? Um, I'll just answer you right now. Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz had asked that question, and it was really involving autopsies, but it's the same issue, which is, if you think that there's someone really around, there's always going to be someone around who's going to benefit from this research. If there's really some kind of disease that's going on there, and there is a major concern that it has to be for some for a purpose. It can't be that someone, and, and, and obviously the forerunner is to save someone's life down the road, right? So clearly, yes, if there is the potential, and you know that there's a potential out there, um, then that would be permissible, according to Rabbi. Yep. Yes. Yes. And autopsies. And autopsies at that point. Okay. Let's, so, so we see that 
um, delaying burial of a dead, deriving benefit from the dead, and desecrating of the dead by harvesting someone's organs clearly does not violate Giloy Arayot, Shvichot Damim, and um, what did I forget? Ovdei Zara. So in that situation, clearly we would not have a problem with um, harvesting someone's organs. Yeah? The uh, source, if you have it, for the um, uh, corneal transplant, but yeah, I'll tell you where it is. Um, it will be, I, I, if you give me your email afterwards, I could give it to you. I didn't, I didn't Xerox it, but part of it is in here, and the source is 35. In that source is where he talks about cornea transplant. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Calling what murder? It's not. It's not murder. Ah. So then we're going to get into declaring someone dead. But you're not going to. You're not going to be violent. You're not killing anyone if you take organs from someone who's dead. We'll talk about the definition of death when it's permitted to harvest organs. And when we do that, um, you will make that determination for yourself whether or not you view harvesting organs after someone is cardiac dead or harvesting organs after someone is dead by determination of irreversible cessation of respiration, for example. You'll make that determination, yeah. Um, but yes, and that's why some people are up in arms when you don't declare death by cardiac death and others and, and, and brain death. So, so you can see. I'm sorry. Yes, someone had a question? I was going to offer a medical point about how, what that happens, but you're, you're going to deal with it. That's fine. Okay, great. Okay. Thanks. And if you want to ask me afterwards, I'll tell you how, how it's very, very, very carefully done. So that, uh, you know, HBD, he be dead, definitely. Yeah, we're, we're going to cover that. Meaning, if a person is taking an organ from the dead, the, the question was, what does the Gemara mean when it says that you're benefiting from the dead? So when you're benefiting from the dead, that means if you're harvesting an organ from Ms. X. Well, there are other types of benefit, right? If someone, and, and they actually would sometimes take nails and they would take hair and they would take other things off. Or they use it. Um, but um, but there are ways that one can can benefit from that. They use oils. They would use it. They would use blood actually for dyes. So um, I mean that's kind of gory. There are other things like let's say someone is has certain uh, monetary material. So can I take something or benefit from something that they had done and not finished, and then you're benefiting from something while they're alive. But usually they're talking about the body itself. You're clearly benefiting from someone who's dead, their organ. Well, when they meant desecrating, it also means cutting someone um, and, and moving around their body. Um, 
and not it's connected to bearing someone on time. And when you're doing something like that, subjecting someone to surgery, it may be viewed as a desecration if it's not for a purpose. So when you're cutting someone and extracting and harvesting their organ, it is done for a purpose. You know, it, we're saying it is done for a purpose, so it's not viewed as a desecration. But the concern is, but let's say, let's say organ transplantation, just it's what it was in 1900s. So that may have been viewed as a desecration, unless you say that for research purposes, it could potentially save a life. So then that gets into human experimentation, but that's a different topic. But yeah, okay. Okay, so now let's talk about the sources of organs. Scientists have created artificial organs and tissues to replace the malfunctioning human ones. And with this type of technology, there is no halakhic question regarding a skilled surgeon and a well-known technique where implanting the artificial organs has shown itself to be successful. And the use of medicine, we know, is supported by various sources, such as Source 16 and Source 17, where you see Vachai Bahem in Source 16, and the phrase Rapo Yerape in Shemot, which gives permission for medical treatment, uh, medical intervention to help save lives. And interestingly, though, even though the, heart, the artificial heart pump is more than 100 years old, um, to this day, there is no organ that we can create in the same way as the organs we are created with. If we try to mimic an organ, what, what do you think would be the, the best organ to mimic if we were to? Good, the heart. And the reason that the heart is, that that's why they were working on it for 100 years. The reason is because the, the heart is an independent pump. And it, you know, it's, 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 an, it's all contained, it's an independent single pump, and it pumps blood in and out. And medically, we pump things really well. Um, but still, we're not able to perfect the pump that works as well as the human heart. Um, and, and, and if the heart is difficult, you know, how much more so to try to do a liver or the lung um, or the kidney? That, that would be a lot more complex. So therefore, artificial organs that save lives are not for practical purposes, practical discussion yet. But, but if one day we have the potential to create this technology, and I think we will, um, which can fully and adequately replace our organs, then we'll be in a better position regarding halakhic discussions and questions of scarcity, certainly. Um, now, the next, next area is xenografting. Xenografting, anyone know what that is? Unless you looked on your page. <laughs> what is xenografting? Yeah. Xenografting, with an X. That's where... That's where organs are taken from another species source, a different species source. That, that could be another organ option. The problem that is that human waste is so different from the immunology of any other species, where any foreign organ that is placed in the body not from a human being will be rejected from our immunology and not function as well. And, and anyone know what the closest animal to human beings from an immunological perspective is? Anyone else yet? Good, good. It's the pig. Um, and if there comes a day, is it because you saw your son? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> oh, Eddie spoke about it. Good. So, and if, if there comes a day where we can reprogram the pig by genetic engineering, which, which incidentally is being heavily researched on today, um, this would be a wonderful alternative to human organs. Um, and halakhically, do you see that as a problem? Okay, well, well, you saw, that I, I know a lot of you may have been thinking if you went through the source, why is she giving us the source that it's us to eat pig? So the, the only concern we would have is 
eating the pig, and certainly for pikuach nefesh, we already have established that that wouldn't be a problem. Even, I know this sounds quite gross, but even if I would have to take the, heart, the pig's heart, put it in my mouth, swallow it, and miraculously it would end up in, my, in the right spot, that would be mutter. That would be permissible, because obviously we're talking about pikuach nefesh. Um, and obviously that is not one of the prohibitions of shvichutamim, of a so you're not having a problem there. Um, but again, artificial organs, um, nor organs from animals, is a possibility to save someone's life. So we need human organ sources. So when we talk about donation, we talk about three things. We talk about the gold page, the silver page. No, just kidding. Uh, we talk about. Uh, my husband said, "Can you put something light in there?" Something. Okay, we can do that. <laughs> but anyway, we talk about three levels of donation. We're talking about a living, a living human, and two areas of of dead donation. Um, we're talking about someone declared dead by cardiac function, loss of cardiac function, and someone declared dead due to irreversible cessation of respiration. And after the pronouncement of someone's dead, organs are taken from the body. And, and, and you know, although we won't be speaking about today, um, there are other sources. We talk about fetus anencephalic babies um, as options for organs as well. And certainly, we're, I'm sure um, Dr. Eichmann spoke about this at length, but uh, you know, stem cell research is a very promising area um, in terms of where it could be taken for potential organs. Um, but we're not going to speak about that today. Yeah? Um, it probably is also important to be aware that there's a difference between organ donation, a liver, a heart, a kidney, and tissue, uh, which would be blood. We're going to get into that, absolutely. You're ahead of me here. Yes, you're, you're getting there. You, you have it all in your mind. That's fantastic. So we'll zip through that. Yeah, go ahead. An anencephalic baby is someone who's, um, you know, we'll get into this a little bit, but, the, but, they're, but what happens is you could take really their, their cells and their uh, fetal cells grow very rapidly. Or someone, a newborn, a newborn, I'm sorry? Oh, oh it's uh, someone who's born basically with a half a brain. It's a very sad, but there are some situations, documented situations, at least I know at Mount Sinai, where there are people declared anencephalic babies, and they had like a half a brain structure. So at least a half a brain structure. Right, they did, right, right. And, and the person will not live long. So, so. No, we're talking about anencephalic babies or fetus, uh, fetuses are also potential donors. Um, of organs, of heart, of liver, right, right. But what we're going to be speaking about today is a living human being, um, presumably an adult. Usually, we talk about, um, and we, we're going to be talking about people who are declared dead by either cardiac function. That's correct, or, or to a, to an older person as well. You're able to do that. Yes, yes. Well, certainly livers, they regenerate. Liver regenerates, so that's not going to be... But, you know, I, I'd love to... It's, that's, no, 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 it's fine. No, it's, it's fascinating, I know. Um, but, uh, no, don't be sorry. Um, so, before entering the halakha discussion of the possibility of these transplants, what we should emphasize is that it's a noble act to save another person's life. And the Torah states to do whatever is appropriate and necessary to save another's life. So we're talking about me as a live potential donor um, to someone else. 
Um, but the safety of a Jew in danger is considered similar to a person with lost property. So if you see that someone is in danger, don't I have a responsibility as a potential donor um, to give to someone else? So take a look at source 19, and it's expounded on the Gemara in source 20. Uh, the the Talmud takes the phrase in the in Devarim, Vahashivotalo, if someone loses something, um, you must return it to him. And how does the Gemara understand this? Um, the Gemara says, Well, you have a responsibility to returning what is lost to an owner. And the idea expounded on by the Gemara and further by Rashi in source twenty one is to include someone in danger where is in effect you return his body to him. Thus the biblical injunction to return someone's lost property includes sa- saving someone in danger. And furthermore, Rashi comments on this verse in Vayikra, in Source 12, Lo tamod al which I'm sure a lot of us are very familiar with, do not stand idly by where your brother's blood is being spilt. Rashi says in Source 23 that you cannot stand by and do nothing while your friend's blood is being spilt. For example, you see that he is drowning and you can save him, or wild animals or robbers are attacking him. You have to try to do what you can to rescue him. Additionally, in Source 24, in the Brighton Sanhedrin says that if animals or robbers are attacking your friend, it is your duty to try to rescue him by all possible means. And this understanding of Lota Modal Damreyecha raises the question of risk again, right? We had risk before. And here, the question is, how much can I risk myself? I mean, I'm healthy, I'm fine. Why should I put myself in a risky situation? That will compromise my health. So the Radbaz says that the two examples that we saw in the Gemara dealing with ones, with ones risking their life is really only talking about um, a 50-50 chance, meaning your risk cannot be that 60% chance you're not going to make it. It has to be the maximum of 50-50, meaning I cannot risk myself more than a half chance that I'll make it out alive. So, so basically, he also assumes that that would be the maximum amount that anyone would want to risk their life. So he says, you really can't, you really wouldn't be allowed to do that. And the reason he says is, think of, think of what you're putting, you're trying to save someone's life, you're trying to do pikuach nefesh. But remember, one of, the, one of the risks of doing pikuach nefesh, it shouldn't violate one of the big three, shvichut damim. Shvichut damim in, includes you yourself. You shouldn't hurt yourself or potentially kill yourself to save someone else. And... Therefore, if I am on the road and I see someone in a car and they spin out, if I have the potential, and obviously I shouldn't be a deterrent to this person, if I have the potential to call an ambulance on the phone, if I'm a medical professional, if I can stop the person's bleeding, donate blood, expend energy, give money if necessary to bring this person to a facility to aid their condition, you know, even on Shabbos I can do that. I have an obligation to do something. But risking one's own life, you have to be very careful. So what am I thinking about here? What could be the potential concern here? Well, somebody many years ago asked me what I knew about the Jewish law and the subject of Jewish person who was very knowledgeable and was concerned about are you allowed to donate a kidney? It turned out a relative of her ex-husband was in a situation where they needed one and she was willing to donate one. 
she wanted to know what the story was. So I did I all those years spending that going all And I gave her a selection of it she made a movie. Right. So what you're saying is the issue is the thing is that so oh wow, great, I can donate a kidney, but then down the line once something goes wrong with my other one, how much are you are you Right. And so when we're talking about kidneys, certainly my kidney, I have two healthy kidneys, thank God. So then why can't I just give one of my kidneys away? Well, there's always the potential for one of your kidneys to fail. Um, so do I want to take that risk upon myself? Right, so there, there's, we will get into that because Rav Avadya Yosef in Israel a number of years ago made a claim that, um, well, we'll talk about the possibility for kidney transplant and the permissibility of it, but he said that perhaps when someone is dead, that perhaps they have an obligation to give their kidney, but some people misunderstood that, that person has an obligation to give their kidney while they're alive, and one doesn't have an obligation to give their kidney while they're alive because of the risks involved. However, because the surgical um, procedure of kidney transplant has been very successful, albeit a risk, and it is a risk, because the person has to be on immunosuppressive drugs afterwards, albeit a risk, um, to save someone's life, one is definitely permitted and, and actually the Radbaz says that if someone does put themselves, Rav David Ben Zimra, who lived during the time of Rav Yosef Karl by the way, um, when, when he made this statement um, he said if anyone does an act of saving a life and it pretends, presents a risk, he said keep in mind it's a midat chasidu it's, 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 a, it's a, such a pious act that one is able to put themselves in that situation and do that for a loved one or even someone who they don't know. And we're going to see something on this video in, a, in about a half hour which will um, discuss that. Um, you'll see what some people have done. We, we, we had spoken about that a little bit, that there's an underground, there's like a, a black market on kidneys now from Israel. Right, right. And we're going to talk about compensation, and it's a, it's a, very, it's a very difficult area. And Israel almost passed it, and Israel almost passed it. Avram Steinberg actually felt that they should give 25000 shekel to every family if they would donate. But um, let's, can we hold off on compensation for, for a few minutes? But I think that you're right. I think that that's a very important area to discuss as well. But let, let's just jump ahead. There, the, we know for a recipient the, the treatment is a therapeutic treatment. Um, and there are different laws regarding experimental treatment. But there is one area um, and, and so a recipient can undergo, we said, the surgical procedure. But there is one area that we haven't spoken about, and that is what if a recipient is a Kohen? This is actually kind of interesting. Is there tumor ritual defilement if a recipient receives an organ from a dead donor? Is the organ, like a dead body, considered tumor mate and now is being placed into the body of a Kohen? It's an interesting question, right? Furthermore, I mean... Ah, very good. Very good. So furthermore, can Kohanim be, and also the other question is, can Kohanim be in the room with the recipient who received a heart from a dead individual? So interestingly, according to the Rambam, if you look in, in Hilchus Tumas Mate in Source 25, 
You see that when dealing with tumat mate ritual defilement from a dead person, the issue of tumat cannot arise. Because what does he say? Because anything which is absorbed in a living body does not defile. So even if you have something dead inside your body, um, it's, it's not going to spread the tumat mate wealth. <laughs> And, according to Rav Unterman, former Israeli chief rabbi in Source 35, there you go, we have a lot of Rav Untermans running around here. You thought it was actually viewed as a very, a very um, um, unpopular opinion at the time when he said this, but it, was actually, it actually stuck, and people really view this as a wonderful little hop here, where he said that, and you look at Source 35 when he was talking, this is where he was talking about corneal transplants. He says that it is irrelevant that the body from which the organ was taken is still dead because the prohibition against using the organ rests not on the fact that it came from a dead body, but on the fact that it itself is a dead organ. It's in the words, once it is implanted into a living person and life permeates it through the flow of blood and sensation, exactly what you said, the prohibition disappears because the basis for the prohibition no longer exists. When an organ is living, no prohibition that relates to a dead organ applies. So as long as the transplant succeeds in the recipient's body, the organ is no longer dead and it becomes a part of the loving body it is in. In fact, people ask this question, what happens to my organ if I donate my organ Can I, and, and the organ fails? Can the person be buried with the organ that didn't make it? And the answer is no. Once it is placed into another person's body, the new body declares ownership. Okay. Now, there are three categories of donors. The live donor, we said, a donor declared dead due to cessation of heart function, and the donor declared dead as evidenced by irreversible cessation of respiration. Now, the live donor. Organs taken from, the live, or, uh, from live donors are those, that org are those organs that a person can live with. And they can live with them after they're being removed, obviously. And for example, one kidney, blood, bone marrow, part of the liver. We have five livers. We can do skin grafting. And there are a number of other organs as well that they've been working on. But those for sure are transplants um, that are And the liver, the, the, new, the new transplant procedure of taking part of one's um, liver, the lobes of the liver, is actually quite fascinating because they've now seen that myself, the recipient, my liver can regenerate and I put a little bit of a lobe in someone else and it becomes uh, a, full, a full healthy liver, which is really unbelievable. Um, and so, where, where the, and again, where the, where, the, where the halakha question exists is, do I have this obligation to notate these organs, or is it a rishus? Is it, is it, is it uh, just something that I'm allowed to do, and I'm viewed as a nice person? So, again, um, along these lines of what the Red Baz said before, Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobus said that a donor may endanger his own life or health to supply a spare organ to a recipient whose life would thereby be saved only if the probability of saving the recipient's life is substantially greater than the risk to the donor's life or health. And he doesn't say the 50-50. He said only if it's so substantial, like if the person has diabetes or the person really is not a surgical candidate. That would be a situation that he really means. Not if maybe the transplant surgeon is not um, maybe has succeeded in the majority of cases. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, um, 
it's it's a it's a little you have a little bit more leeway, I guess, percentage wise than the Red Baz, according to Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz. And you know, and he applied this to all organs, not just not just kidney. All organs that are available for live donor to donate. Um, and the Tzitz Eliezer, though, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who lives in Israel, he's a big posik in bioethics and halacha. Yeah. So um, he said that kidney transplants from a live donor are only permissible if a group of trustworthy physicians testify that there is no danger to the life of the donor and if the donor is not coerced into consenting to this procedure. But if one takes the Tzitzeliezer literally, what doctor is going to say that there's absolutely no risk at all in a surgical procedure? So as always, um, so with Dr. Fred Rosner, you may be familiar with some of his work. He's a, he's a physician, an ethicist, a halachic scholar. So what he commented on what the Tzitzeliezer wrote, he said, really what he meant was, are, are you obligated? Are you obligated to partake in that study? But certainly someone is permissible. Because you can only give someone an obligation, meaning that pikuach nefesh is facing you, you must do it. He viewed it as an obligation. Only if someone tells you that there's absolutely zero risk involved. And that's not the case. Now let's get to the question of compensation. Can I ask for money to donate my kidney? Or can I request to put on a top of a list for a kidney transplant if I have volunteered my kidney, one of my two kidneys, if they should fail. In the medical world in America, it is forbidden to receive compensation for um, donating a kidney. But interestingly enough, if you look in the Rambam in Source 26, it states that there are five types of payments that can be claimed as a result of injury. They are nezek, damage, tsar, pain, Repoy medical, including surgical fees, shevet, unemployment benefits, and boshet, humiliation. And there's a method to calculate this amount. And furthermore, in Source 27, the Rambam holds that if one person says to another, injure me and you will be exempt from payment of damages, the one who injured will still be obligated in five categories of restitution. And according to this view, if a donor were to provide a kidney for another person, there would still be an element of compensation for the injury, even though it was done voluntarily. By the way, Rambam doesn't believe that anyone would really want to put themselves in this situation. He doesn't think that anyone would really want to be injured. But it's interesting that halachically, you know, it would be okay to give someone um, money for, for injuring them. Putting them through this tsar, yeah. Certainly surgical fees, and by the way, in America, you do pay for someone's surgical fees, and you do pay for someone's pharmaceuticals, for sure. But when you're talking about paying for the actual part, no, you don't have that obligation, and you, you can't in America. But according to Rambam, you can get, you can get paid for it. Um, but ethically here, what? Would pay for the donors. Yes, yeah, the recipient, right, if I'm a recipient, right, absolutely. But I'm saying, but I'm saying that's where the compensation would come out. You, and, and certainly that's reasonable. But ethically here, just in terms of compensating for an organ, and, and you mentioned that in Israel there is a black market going on right now, um, which is very scary, um, where people, and not only scary from the perspective of what does it mean if people are buying or selling their organs, 
right? It's also scary from the perspective of who's consenting to doing these procedures and where is it being done and, and what is the information that's being given to both the patient, the recipient patient, and the donor patient, and the families. And, and that's a very big ethical concern. And also, the ethical concern is the debate of justice here. Compensation for organs only works for the wealthy who can pay for the organs, where the poor will never get organs because they can't pay for them. And the, the issue, again, is whoever has money gets medicine. And, and that's a very scary situation to be in. Um, finally, the question of capacity to make decisions to donate organs comes up. There was a matter that came before the Israeli Supreme Court where a father had end-stage renal disease, and he had a son who was mentally, mentally handicapped, very severely. His, his level was, was that, I would say, of, a, of an infant, of a young boy. Um, and the father was the guardian, and he was the only one taking care of this young adult. Uh, not young adult, he was in, I think, his, his 20s. Um, and the mother wasn't around. So the father needed a kidney transplant, and he, um, and the Israelis, and the doctors wouldn't, and he wanted to consent, he signed the consent form for his son to give one of his kidneys to him, and his, his son was a perfect match. And this, this matter went before the Israeli Supreme Court, and the matter was, to, and it was turned down, because this child did not have the capacity to make these decisions for himself. I mean, many issues to think about in this situation. First of all, this father is taking care of his son. Um, when the son gets older, if the kidney fails, uh, his other kidney fails, who is really going to make sure that this boy gets to dialysis? Who's going to make sure that this kid could potentially get, this boy, this man, could get a kidney transplant? Uh, that's only part of it. Who's going to take care of this child when the father is, is incapacitated? And, and there are many issues also that you can take. How can we possibly subject, this is the main issue, how can we possibly subject um, this young man to a surgical procedure without his knowing um, what's going on? And the Israeli Supreme Court, by the way, flatly turned it down, but did mention that these cases do come up and there might be situations where um, even if someone doesn't have capacity, they would be permitted. Um, and as of yet, they have never given... Um, given the approval to take a kidney or, or any organ from someone who doesn't have capacity, but they still are open to the potential. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Right. You have a your motive there. And the fact that he was handicapped and it was just an abuse. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, now, and someone else said, okay. Um, so let's discuss the category of organs, organ donors from people declared no longer living. So, just to give you a nice little quote, Dr. Avram Steinberg said, What a mitzvah it is for a person to do, to perform pikuach nefesh while alive, so much more so to have this last, and I think Haz, Halachic Organ Donation Society, actually uses this as their, it's your last mitzvah, right? But how much more so to do such a wonderful uh, mitzvah when someone is no longer alive? But the question is death. And if you look at Source 33, Rabbi David Bleich writes that brain death and irreversible coma are not acceptable 
definitions of death insofar as halacha concerned. The so criterion of death accepted by halacha is total cessation of cardiac and respiratory activity. So according to Rabbi Bleich, cardiac activity is, or lack of cardiac activity, irreversible cessation of cardiac activity is the only determination um, for him. Um, and he, did, he wrote this in tradition a number of years ago. 1977. Um, but he still maintains this position. He still maintains this position. And as we've seen, but as... No, it means, how, how do we determine someone dead? We're defining death now. And, and it's, it's important to us today because we're talking about taking, harvesting organs. And many organs can only be harvested when someone is already declared dead. And that would be like the heart, the lung, the liver. But certain organs, certainly after cardiac function has ceased, it's not going to be worthwhile to harvest their organs anyway because they're not going to be viable. So the first thing we have to see is if you declare someone dead by cardiac death, though, there are organs. A kidney can, 10, 30 minutes after um, someone's heart has stopped beating, one can still harvest a kidney. Corneas, skin, there are a no- bone. There are a number of transplants that are still possible. And although Rabbi Bleich might not want to come forward and say this, still one can, even if you declare someone dead by cardiac death, it still should be told in the Jewish community that this is halakhically viable. This is a good option. Um, so it, it still would be an option. I should say good option. It still would be an option that there are some, I mean, when you look at the piece of paper that I gave you, the amount of people waiting for organs, many of them are kidney. And so this still, and, and the success rate after someone blood has stopped, someone's blood has stopped the flow, meaning that they've had cardiac failure, the success rate, according to the New England Journal of Medicine, is 80% when the, blood, when the heart stops. It's 85% when someone's brain has ceased function. And when someone's live, it's, you mentioned like around 97, right? It's in the upper 90s um, success rate. But still, 80% rate, success rate is significant. Ah, we will get to that. We will get to that. Yes, excellent. So that's, yes. No, 80% rate, I'm saying the kidney alone, which is a very, it's, it's much in demand. It's an organ that's much in demand. If someone has been declared dead because their heart has stopped beating, they can still harvest their, uh, up to 30 minutes, their kidney can be harvested and placed into someone else. And that surgical procedure has an 80% success rate. You're limited in heart. You're limited in lung. You're limited in many. You're limited in intestines. You're limited in certain, uh, yes, I agree. That there pancreas. You can't do a lot of organs. But there are some that you can do. You can do bone. You can do skin. I mean, there are... There are many, um, there, are, there are a number of organs still that can really significantly alter someone else's life. So, so saying no to organ donation altogether because someone is dead by cardiac means is what I want to 
I want to, um, you know, change in terms of people's thinking. Yeah. Well, nowadays, uh, the majority of people who donate are non-Jewish, but yeah. yeah. But am I understanding your question? It seems unfair. That's what we mentioned before, that this is like very, it's morally ambiguous to us, right, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, we're going to get to that. And the answer is no. The answer is no. No. But but we will get to that. Um, now let's talk about... Um, before we talk about brain death, I, I really want to talk about the moment of death. Um, it's a very hard moment to declare. And biologically, truthfully, there's only one moment of death. That's when every cell in the body is dead. And this situation occurs approximately three days after a heart stops beating. From a biological perspective, there really is not a moment of death. Rather, there is a process upon which there is gradual dying. Different tissues and organs die at different times due to different needs of oxygen, blood, or energy supply. There are organs that will die if they don't receive blood whereas there are other organs that will receive no blood supply and yet be fully viable for hours to days. At one moment, this part is dying, and the other moment, another part of the body is alive. Which of these d organs, upon its death, constitutes death of a person? As a society, we establish the definition of life and death based on whatever criteria we choose. From a biological perspective, it's an arbitrarily defined moment. Therefore, we don't ask scientists to define death. Um, but the question really becomes societal. When will we call the Chavrit Kedisha? When will it be appropriate to harvest organs? So this social debate is not only a halakhic debate. The President's Commission is still debating what exactly we define death as. And if we say it's a functional heart, it's when the heart stops functioning, fine. Then taking the heart would be murder, right? If we define death as when the cessation of brain activity ceases, it happens, then taking the heart would not be defined as murder. And that's why this is very important. Um, now, how does halacha define death? Does anyone have an idea? Anyone got to that? Yeah. yeah. It has to do with the, the cessation of breathing. Uh, they used to use a mirror, but a feather could work. <laughs> Maybe they use that as well. But where do you see that? In Source 28, let's look. There was a situation that happened. We spoke about, you kind of used this Gemara and Yom already. If debris falls on someone on Shabbos and it's uncertain whether or not he's alive or dead, one must probe the heap of debris for him. If he is found to be alive, one must remove the debris for him. If he is, if he is found to be dead, then he's left there until after Shabbos. So the Gemara in Source 28.9 now is going to say, so how far should I search? How far should I go? Until one reaches his nose up to his heart, right? Like, is it, is it, then the Gemara says, could it be up to his heart? Is it up to his nose or up to his heart? So, Rav Papa said, the dispute arises only from below upwards. What does that mean? That means if I have a pile of heap on top of me and I start checking, 
You know, after 9-11, I have to tell you that this really was an issue that happened, that people were checking on Shabbos. You had a lot of people, a lot of Hever Kedisha at the site. So where do you start checking? So if it's from the bottom, like the base of the feet, when should I stop? Should I stop here or should I stop here? That's where the question happens. So Rav Papa said it doesn't matter. He said it matters where you start checking. If you said I'm starting from the top of my head, then clearly you stop at the nose. That's not a debate at all. But if I'm stopping, starting at the bottom of my feet, you have to go past the heart. The heart, Rav Papa says, does not always work. It's not, even if the heart is not beating and you don't detect any heartbeat, it doesn't mean the person's not living. So keep on going. Keep on clearing the debris until you get up to the nose, until, until you can really make an assessment that there is absolutely no breathing. And that's right. That's cessation of, car, of respiration. And that's what you're looking for. And then in Source 30, again, Rashi makes the point of saying that if he does not exhale breath, it's not only the inhale, if you don't feel any exhaling, and that's when you were talking about the feather or the mirror, if you don't see that or feel that, that's where you know that he's dead. And just to go through these sources, because these are very significant, Source 31, Rashi says that the dispute is being discussed in the Gemara arises, again, only in the examination towards the head. And even though that there's an indication that you know, someone could say that the heart really determines whether or not someone's alive. It's really where the breath pulsates. And the, bread, uh, the breath pulsates really in the nose. And, and, and that is really where we're at. And it's, it's supported by the Rambam in Source 31 and the Shulchan Aruch in Source 32. You see that if, again, the Rambam says it, the Shulchan Aruch says it, that, and actually the Rambam mimics the Gemara. But if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, what does the Shulchan Aruch do? He says, you know what? It doesn't matter who the, what they uncovered first. It doesn't matter what direction you go. Just check the nose. And, that, and that's very interesting because you can hear a lot of people who say, um, so you can hear a lot of people say, no, it's really rooted, and I've heard Rabbanim say this, it's really rooted in the Gemara and the Rishonim sources. I am telling you that the majority of sources, halachic sources, will tell you, according to the Gemara, the Rishonim, Achronim have changed them a little bit, but the real definition of death, if you really need a, a Jewish halachic um, definition, it is when there is the cessation of respiratory function. And there are those who say that it's heartbeat. It's true. But that really is the minority opinion. Because the source that they give you is from the Torah. And, where's, what is, and you probably saw it. What is the Torah source that they give you in Genesis? What do they quote? Right. From Adam and Chava. What happens? Hashem breathed life into them. Right? And so that's where they say, the majority of sources say, that's where life began. And that's where life ceases. Okay, sorry. Yeah. You have an obligation to try to revive them. Absolutely. Um, if you have seen, if you don't feel, if, you, if you've gone to the nose and, like you mentioned, you tickle the feather, they didn't really have CPR the way we understand it now. But what they did do is they tried to kind of, kind of push them, get them moving, you know, like try to jiggle them. That's what they used to do. Now, yeah, you would have an ob obligation to try to do CPR. But if you see that no breath is coming out of that nose, um, or the mouth, then, and you see that there is absolutely no respiration, 
Don't determine it by heartbeat or pulse. Determine it by breath. Yeah. Um, the actual final determination in many is he including cardiac activity? What do you do in the case of, what do they do with the heart is still going because we're providing oxygen, but they're not breathing? I agree what with you. What do you do with the turtle heart that when you take it out of the body? Ah, you get, absolutely. That's exactly what I was going to talk about, the frog experiment. Okay, All you have to do is, Look, I was going to mention the frog experiment. Thank you. The frog turtle experiment. I did a frog, but good. The frog experiment, you take someone's heart out, you put it in saline, it's beating. And what's happening to the frog? The frog fine, but it's leaping around a little bit, right? You tip, but you see that the heart is expanding. It's an independent source, but the rest, it abandons the rest of the body. But if you look at the frog, when you take out the lungs, you put the lungs in saline, without any impetus from the brain, it's going to deflate. You're not going to have any lungs. The lungs just going to shrivel up there. So that shows us that where is the source for breathing? The source for breathing where? It's in the brainstem. We know that it's in the brainstem. But I, I jumped ahead. But that's exactly right. And people are constantly coming to Rabbi Black and saying, what are you talking about? Where is the source of breathing? Where is the source of life? It's not pulsating in the heart. It's not from the heart. It's really from the brain stem, and we're going to do this right now. Well, he wants, he does claim it's irreversible cessation of respiration, but only insofar as it's connected to cardiac function. And, and I think he's playing it safe, and, and he, he is very interesting philosophically when he makes certain arguments, but I have to say that in this case, it just, to me, um, I don't see it really being true to the Gemara, and I don't see it being true to the Rishonim, and I don't see it being true to really um, the way traditionally we view life. Um, but at the same time, that being said, um, even if you say that it's cessation of cardiac function, there still are other organs um, that he should be, in my opinion, promote. Right, encouraging. But anyway, um, and again, I just want to emphasize whatever we are talking about, whatever determination we are saying about death, it should be irreversible. And that's very important. Um, there is such a thing of clinical death where a physician says that, that he was dead, but he came back to life. What is that? That's basically um, a euphemistic term for we made a major mistake. That's really what he's saying there. But no, when we make a determination of death and the person has really, and you've really done an attempt um, to revive this person, and then you haven't, you haven't attempted enough. <laughs> um, and, but, but the funny thing is, really, dead is a situation. When we're talking about death, it's a situation completely irreversible. Therefore, we have to check for signs of death to see if it's irreversible. What, what is that? Like, for example, if I take a breath right now, am I dead? Am I dead? I'm not breathing. But no, it's irreversible. I can breathe again. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a situation where we clearly see that the function has ceased to be. And, and when those who were making the determination in the Gemara that the irreversible cessation of, heart, of, of respiration is really the determining factor, um, they were saying that really whatever is the internal pacemaker that is setting the, that is telling the body to stop breathing irreversibly, if that is not working anymore, that will be, um, that will be our determinant for the person, for claiming that the person is dead. And again, the frog experiments, you can see what happens when you put lungs in a saline solution. The lungs are going to shrivel up. It requires the brain. So what we have to do now is look at what kind of experiment or what kind of procedures we can take um, if we suspect that someone is dead by irreversible cessation of respiration. This is now, we're, now we're looking at, again, to remind you, a donor who is dead by irreversible cessation of respiration. I keep on saying that, and I don't say brain death, because whole brain death is a little bit more concerning, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But what do I mean by irreversible cessation of respiration? Well, the brain stem is where the impetus of breathing is. We know that. And there are some who claim that, uh, not some, there are many, there are many tests and techniques that they use in hospitals that really can demonstrate whether or not someone's heart is, be, uh, someone is breathing on their own or not. The first thing is the EEG, the electroencephalogram. The problem with that is that when someone's first declared dead, dead by irreversible cessation of respiration, they're not going to get a flat line of an EEG. You will always see that there's some kind of cellular activity from other parts of the brain going on. And that's what, I don't know if you know Rabbi Tendler. Rabbi Tendler, initially, when he was speaking about brain death, et cetera, he wanted to use the EEG, but the problem was people, and, and unfortunately he got a bad rap for this. That was all they had at the time. But the EEG never fully flatlined. So people never knew for sure that the brain was not sending the signal to, um, to the lungs to breathe. They didn't know for sure, and that was a problem. And truthfully... Um, after Rav Unterman's um, recommendation that the determination of a death in Israel should be irreversible cessation of respiration, which the truth is the chief rabbinate of Israel does use that as the determination of death. But the problem was there. The Ministry of Health wanted to give everyone a license. We mentioned the license. Wanted to give a place on everyone's license that they can sign an organ card. And they wanted it to say there, um, you know, determined dead by EEG standards um, because that's what the Ministry of Health wanted. And the chief rabbinate of Israel said, we can't use that. And they said, well, we only want to use that as our determination. But that's a problem, and that was a problem then. So what happened was the chief rabbinate didn't give the okay to put that on the license. But what they use now, I have to say, they have a lot of techniques. We have many techniques. You have something called a radioisotope test where um, a device like a Geiger is placed on, a, a dye is injected, a radioisotope dye is injected into the person, and there is a Geiger-like substance put on top of a person's head, and then it detects brain, blood flow. And it ceases at the midbrain, at the, at the brainstem level. And that's one way that we can know. It's not 100%, but that's one way that we can know if breathing function has stopped. If there's no activity in the brainstem, we know that 
a person's not going to breathe on their own. Another test is called the carotid angiography test, which is actually very interesting, which is also a dye that runs through the bloodstream, and it literally, through x-ray, it stops right here. It's very interesting. It just stops right there at, at the base of the brain. And they know this person, there is no blood flow there. If there is no blood flow there, there is no way the message is getting sent to the lungs to breathe. So that's a really good determining factor. The problem with that is, if someone's over in Orbach didn't like that as a determining factor because he said that's like, if the person is alive, then the person is a gosase. We're, go back to your Shulchan Aruch. We're not allowed to touch that person. So he feels that wouldn't be good enough. Um, because you're actually, even though the dye is running through, it's like you're touching them. And he didn't like that. He's the only one who said that. But, but there's a better test. You're and, what? You're them. Right, right, right. But you're not moving them. The movement, the concern of movement is really, he says, through the bloodstream. That's what he's really concerned about. But yes. Uh, so that was one. But right now, I spoke to many neurologists. The apnea test, which is a very simple test an apnea test um, that is usually that is administered to many different types of patients and they, a lot of neurologists have told me that that is a very safe easy way non-invasive way that you just determine whether or not there's no activity in the brainstem and to me that is great that makes sense that means that we really have some indication now of uh, an Exactly. They're looking for the impetus. That's exactly right. Thank you. So, um, and, and that is that is really where we're at. And it makes uh, personally, it makes a lot of sense to me to use that as a determination. I I really want to, and soon so we could see a very interesting video here. But one thing I would be really remiss if I wouldn't mention, which is there was a big machlok and a big concern with Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Moshe Feinstein, it was not clear what he held regarding organ donation. First of all, I want to say that he wrote these, in, these responsa in the 70s and early 80s, when quite frankly, heart transplantation, kidney transplantation is not what it is now. Um, and regarding heart transplantation, he did say that it would be double murder. I'm going to say this really fast. So if people don't get it, please come up to me afterwards. I want to make sure that it's clear. But he claimed that it was double murder. Murdering the recipient by doing an unnecessary procedure that's going to kill them anyway. Now, what he thought of the Shvut Yaakov would be interesting. Look, what does he think of risk, right? Um, but the second thing would be, the second thing is killing the donor. Because the only way that you can harvest a heart is if someone's declared dead by 
irreversible cessation of respiration. Now, that's what he said in one tshuva. In another tshuva, he made a very clear claim, and I brought the tshuva here if anyone's interested in reading it. I just didn't get a chance to translate it for everyone. But um, there's a very interesting tshuva where he says, he, he, and he's talking about withholding withdrawing treatment as a completely different tshuva, where he claims that the determination of death is irreversible cessation of respiration. So he was asked, and he actually put on the spot, what do you mean? If it's irreversible cessation of respiration, we can say that someone's declared dead by irreversible cessation of respiration. They can donate the heart. Why do you claim that it's murder? So he said, and I have this letter, and this letter, by the way, I have the letter. It's refuted left and right by Rabbi Bleich and others who say that it's really, it never exists. I have it. It exists. He wrote it, and he said that if there would be a situation where, um, where the there's a therapeutic treatment, there's a real treatment in transplantation surgery. It's really, it really works. And you develop immunosuppressive drugs, which we have done. This is before cyclosporin. We develop those drugs. And it would be very clear that we can declare someone dead by irreversible cessation respiration. Then I could see this being a, a therapeutic procedure and it would be permitted. I have the letter, and he said it, and he wrote it to his grandson. And he quotes his grandson. And so I just want you to know that Rav Mo and that's why Rabbi Tenler and others in his family really claimed that Rav Moshe would have held that it would be okay. It just was not the time for it to be permissible in his mind because he didn't see any of the transplant procedures really at their utmost in terms of their, uh, in terms of their, uh, the real discussion that it's really saving lives. And he had different views of human experimentation. So he wouldn't have allowed something like that. But if he... Yeah, well, it's a very important thing for people to know. And, yeah. Why wouldn't Rabbi Tenler be part of these um, rabbis that are saying that it's okay to have it? Why isn't he? He is. I, I, I'm on the Hod Society, along with Dr. Rabbi Eddie Rechmer, all together on it. And Rabbi Tenler does, um, he is involved. He personally doesn't want his name involved. He's made these claims, and he will, he will state clearly that he views this, and he's given the okay to the Makaros that were written for that. So um, he, he has publicly stated that he's a part, that he agrees with it. He doesn't feel like he wants to um, affiliate his name with it, but, but he personally has been very much involved and very supportive of it. Um, that seems so odd because something so important yeah. the group that he would follow him, and if he believes in it, why he wouldn't want his right. followers to... Uh, right, I can't answer for that. I can't answer for that. But he, he is involved. He is involved in Hans. The politics of this are very... Right. Uh, let me... Right. Why you? Okay, anyway. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, um, lastly, I just want to clear up some basic misconceptions. There are some misconceptions that reason that we shouldn't donate organs is because for, during Tchiyat HaMetim, what are we concerned about? that we're not going to have the organs necessary to get up and go. And that's a very big, if you ask people, if you ask people in Eretz Yisrael, that's the number one reason they won't donate their organs. And let me just tell you, Avram Steinberg said it very, very well. He said, look, if Hashem, not if Hashem, when Hashem does tchiyadamaitim, do you think Hashem's going to need help to get the people to get up and walk? Believe me, they'll walk. That's what he said, the first thing. Second thing, if anyone is a medical person, scientific person, you know that organs, only a few weeks after they're underground, they already start disintegrating. Organs don't make it through. 
Um, so organs are not going to be there anyway during Tchiyat HaMetiv. If, if, <laughs> I mean, uh, you just have to look at the scientific facts. So those concerns, I don't know if any of you had those concerns, but those concerns really are not a part of the discussion. Um, and just, just in conclusion, what I'd like to say is be careful for the slippery slope because even with, and slippery slope means that if, um, it's an ethical term that when something makes sense at the time, it may lead to a lenient, a lenient decision, which at the moment, excuse me, at the moment you would have not agreed to. But once you've agreed to the first step, you may later on agree to the later steps. And the two concerns I do have, um, I, I do want to state, is um, when people consent to organ donation and they sign their license, for example, you have to be very careful. There have been ethical discussions, not in the halacha, but just in basic ethical discussions that I've been involved in, where in hospitals, not in New York City, but in certain remote areas of the country, that if someone has on their license, I want to donate an organ, and a person gets wheeled in, let's say they're, you know, 60-something, and there's a 17-year-old who's been in a car crash, there have been situations where people have been, their, their organs have been harvested prematurely, and unfortunately, um, people have been in PVS, persistent vegetative state, where they really are breathing on their own. They look like they're in a coma, but they're really breathing on their own, and the proper, um, the proper protocol was not taken. And you have to be careful, and that's why. This is not an advertisement for HODs, um, but I do want to say that if people are interested in organ donation, this is not a share that should that you have to donate. That's not what I'm saying. just want people to be informed about, uh, be, be tolerant of and be informed um, of what's going on in halachic organ donation. But what you should do is you should look at that card, that, the organ donation card, and see that even if you want something for cardiac function, even if you want, uh, you want organs taken if you believe in cardiac death as the determination or irreversible cessation of respiration, make it known. And if you don't want organs donated, Make it known. And what you also should do, there's a place for um, a, halachic, a competent halachic authority. You should, in, you should inform your loved ones, and you should inform your uh, a legal counsel. Because it's very important, if, if people see that, they know, I, I'm not going to toy with this person yet. You know, civil legal counsel. Um, it's very important for you. Also, it's very good to have a living will to talk to, talk to people about what's necessary. I'm sorry. I'm saying it's very important to talk about these issues with your family and loved ones and make your matter... Guys, please. It's very important to make these, these matters known um, to your loved ones so that you have control of what is for your end-of-life care and treatment um, in general. You should make these issues known. And, um, and, and also there are other things, not only HADS, but RCA has a living will. Um, and there, there, are other, there are other places that also your, if you have a trust in a state's attorney, he, has, he or she has a living will for you. So there are, there are ways that you can, um, yeah. Yeah. You're saying that if you make it known that you are an organ donor, like on the end, 
But in, in general, it doesn't occur, but it has been known to occur. So I'm not saying don't sign an, an organ donor card. I'm saying be aware of who you've told things to. Make sure when you sign your name that it has a, a little part to it where you are going to inform other people. And, and again, the point of addressing this today is not to convince people to donate your organs. Um, rather, to discuss the halakhic issues around, surrounding organ donation and really just unravel misconceptions so we as community can take important steps in making a conscious decision, informed decision, um, and improving the situation of scarcity of, of organs um, for donation. And if you don't mind, I will take those questions after. Can we just quickly watch... Yeah. Yes. You tell uh, you tell you tell someone legally have two witnesses, have it signed. And I, I just if, I know this has been three days of talking about bioethics and, and halacha issues, and I think one thing that you guys should all, uh, that you individuals <laughs> should should come away with is these issues really need to be discussed and spoken about with loved ones. You have, there are halakhic restraints occasionally for what we do or what we don't do, right? But we have autonomous rights to make certain decisions in our life. And this is, I don't want to say a gift you have, but it's a right that you have. And um, it only assists you yourself for, you know, your last wish, carrying out what you want. And also, it really helps your family, it really helps your family and loved ones, and it helps your healthcare professionals because they toy with this, they deal with this every day. There are ethical concerns that come up all the time, and the clearer you are, the better care you'll get, and the better the decision will be, the cleaner it will be for you and for you all. So let's just, this is a very interesting, let's just tint the lights. This is what, this has, I, I'm curious to hear your feedback. We'll have like five minutes after this is over to just hear a little feedback about about the, um, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Do you think it's effective? It wasn't it? I tested it before. Oh, come on. Here we go. Okay. Could you move it back a little bit, please? Sure. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> it's very important to educate Jews as to the permissibility and even the importance of organ donation. Obviously, when someone is very ill in the hospital, that's not the most opportune time to bring up such an issue. And therefore, it should be brought up and person is far from death's door and is able to make the decision when he could make the decision in a very good and elegant way. We have a principle in Judaism that saving a life takes precedence over everything. Really except for three major transgressions. You guys could do that. Adultery <laughs> and murder. There is nothing more important than saving a human life. And so I believe there would be no question, halakhically speaking, that it is permissible and to a certain extent even mandatory if 
pure organ can save another human life, then after that, to be able to use it. But I certainly believe that people should have organ donor cards. No one really knows what's going to happen within the next minute. And therefore, if you believe it is important, and I think also it's, it's a wonderful way to go to the divine throne, if you have to go, to come at least with the merit of having helped someone else to live. And as a matter of fact, I, I keep my golden golden <laughs> cards with me. He was I one of the first who signed up for Hajj. And the Halakha Golden Donor Society. According to the Torah, donating of organs is a big mitzvah. He's a very a big Hosekin type, a very big guy. According to the Jewish Halakha, uh, brain stem death is considered like death and it's possible to take organs. Yes, we can. Even Israeli has parts, not the same thing. <laughs> 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 not the same as America. <laughs> <laughs> אני באופן אישי מסכים למוות המוחי, אני חושב שזו תהיה מצווה גדולה למשפחה לתרום, קידוש השם גדול שהקבוצה הזו תתפרסם ויוודע בציבור שאנחנו בעד הצלת נפשות על פי כללי ההלכה ויש אפשרות לעשות על פי ההלכה היום הרבה יותר מהנעשה וברוכה תהיה הקבוצה בזה שהיא מקדמת את החינוך לעניין הזה. הלכי אורגן one sure clearly points to the fact that breathing is the only criterion and the chief rabbinate's understanding even then was that this was Albert Feinstein's opinion which was verified both by Albert Feinstein himself later uh, in the years when he was asked about this seemingly contradicting opinion and he clarified that the heart does not make any, uh, it is not of any importance in defining the moment of death, according to his opinion. So was also the opinion of his son, David Feinstein, that understood that his father relied only on breathing, and so is the understanding of his son-in-law, Moshe Tegler. The chief rabbinate's decision obviously was an independent decision. This was their understanding of the definition of this, and they also relied on uh, uh, Moshe Feinstein's understanding according to their viewpoint. Rav Zalman told me specifically, I have written his words, and he checked it and agreed for it to be published, and his position clearly was that the heart per se is not necessarily a sign of life and death. In other words, a person can be defined as dead even though his heart is still functioning. What is important to Rabbi Abach was brain function. There's currently a debate whether brainstem death and cessation of respiration in an irreversible fashion is the halachic definition of death. Of Moshe Feinstein, the chief rabbinate of Israel, Rabbi Mechaniel Goldberg, and other prominent rabbis hold that halachically, indeed, this is the definition of death, and therefore, in this state, one should be an organ donor. Resurrection of the dead should not inhibit anyone from donating organs after death. 
this is halachically unfounded and it is known medically that all organs disintegrate with time and people will be resurrected even those who died many generations ago yet they'll be fully born and have all their organs and will be full human beings despite the fact that in their ways their organs will disintegrate it's a big mitzvah and it really threatened the shah and the cattle came on to donate organs to save others' lives. This was the opinion of Rav Shaul Israel and what we call the death of, of the brain. This was the point of death according to Al-Ha, according to opinion of Rav Shaul Israeli and the chief rabbinate of Israel and the Al-Ha community of the chief rabbinate of Israel. He's talking about Rav Yisraeli. Who He's talking about Rav Yisraeli. Rav Yisraeli was um, the founder of Yeshiva Eretz Chemda, which is a very big Paskin in Yeshiva. Um, they get factors from all over the world, Paskin and Shiloh. And um, Rav Yisraeli was a very well-known postdoc, and he passed away a few years ago. Um, Rav Carmel, he's now, he and Rav Ehrenreich, are the two Rosh Yeshiva there. So, just to keep in mind, these individuals, it's very important, they're doing this for America. I want you to know, they did the same thing in, in, in Hebrew. In Hebrew. They did this for America because still, in America, the majority of Rabbanans are holding that cardiac um, death is the definition of death. And they really want to push that this is... Uh, is, is this uh, available, this video? Um, it, I'm a board member at has, so we all get one. But I can make you a copy, no problem. Rav Shayesh Cohen agreed to donate all my organs for transplant, not for research, only after the option checked said below, irreversible sedation of autonomous breathing, which is confirmed by a brain stem death. I understand this option allows for recovery of all organs. This is the position of the chief editor of Israel, which is, uh, I'm sure you know. And it's, my, my donation is conditional on approval from a rabbi from the chief editor of Israel that is dedicated to my family. You also have a place for heartbeat, cessation of heartbeat, you should know that. He chose brain death. Damage to the, uh, Irreversible cessation of heartbeat on the one that he did not choose. This is very special. Everything you can think together at the moment of our life is as we gathered around his bed and we held hands with each other and we cried and uh, we sang. We said, Shema Yisrael. There's no words to express how at, at once your greatest fear, your greatest tragedy, and yet your greatest unity all at once. And, you know, and I think, I'm just thinking out loud that maybe when you say Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Lokeinu, Hashem, Echad, at that moment, we were hard as, as, as a family. Tani Goodwin was killed by a suicide bomber, and the family had made Aliyah, um, and he donated a number of his organs, and one organ that he donated was a kidney to a little boy. They're about to meet him now. This is very, kind of bring home the point. Uh, and uh, that, that moment, uh, that tragic moment, 
He needs another kidney now. He got it, but I don't know if it's taken.
Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.